0: this morning we are returning to our study of the book of Exodus and our look into the plagues that the Lord poured out on Egypt and we want to keep in mind as we study this passage together the central lesson of the plagues. Pharaoh asks a very pertinent question back in chapter 5 verse 2 that the Lord through every single plague answers emphatically. You remember that question? Who is Yahweh? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh and besides I will not let Israel go. There is that fundamental question. Who is the Lord and how significant is he that I should actually obey him? Now that's a significant question especially for Pharaoh to ask Because he believed that he himself was a god and in fact all of Egypt worshipped thousands of gods. At least 2,000 that we perhaps know of. It's what Romans one twenty-five reminds us of that we touched on last week. As Egypt worshipped their gods, they always assigned their gods to various parts of the creation. And Romans 1.25 reminds us, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is to be blessed forever. That's the heart of idolatry. Idolatry always takes a characteristic of God, the nature of God, and assigns it to something other than God then worships that other thing. And while the creation should point us all to the character of God and what we see in creation should cause us to worship that God, the world ignores that. They ignore it and assign it to something else and call it a God. For Pharaoh to say, who is Yahweh, was another reminder that Pharaoh believed that he was not just a god, but he was the chief among all the gods in Egypt. He was the ex-officio high priest of all the religions of Egypt. He was the highest of all of the gods that existed. That's why his comment is, why should I obey him? Who is God? That is why the chaos that erupts in Egypt is a lesson not only about the inability and the insufficiency of human idolatry. But the chaos that erupts in Egypt is also a display of the comprehensive ability of God, the sufficiency of God. One commentator noted about the Egyptians, said the Egyptians believed that Pharaoh had the power to maintain cosmic order, which they called ma'at, Ma'at was universal equilibrium, the cosmic force of harmony, order, stability, and security. It was Pharaoh's responsibility to maintain Ma'at by controlling the climate, regulating the seasons, and generally preserving order in the world. If that was Pharaoh's responsibility, if he was truly to be the high priest of all the gods and control equilibrium and peacefulness in the world, God was upsetting Pharaoh's sufficiency, wasn't he? He was attacking Pharaoh's ability, what people had hope in him for, which is what God often does to the idolatries of our own heart that we think if we'll worship whatever idol is out there that we're attracted to, it brings some kind of satisfaction in equilibrium to life And then we begin to find out that there's still chaos in life. And that shouldn't draw us away from God. That should actually draw us to say, what are you trying to say to us? That's particularly what these judgments are doing. The plagues answer the question, who is God? They're not just attacking a particular God in Egypt, though we can see specific gods in Egypt that might have been at the bullseye of these judgments, it's not just one God that Yahweh is after. It's all of them. It's all of them. Like Numbers 34, 4 says, the Lord had executed judgments on their gods. All of them. No other God can stand before Yahweh, who alone is God. Every plague is answering the question, who is Yahweh and why should he be obeyed? And as we noted last time, among all the signs and wonders displayed in these chapters, there's more than just 10 plagues. There's also signs of warning, like we saw in the serpents last week, and in the destruction of Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea, which we'll see in months to come. That's why we noted that these judgments actually reveal particular aspects of the character of God. They're not just saying how incapable are the gods of Egypt they're trying to tell us who is our God what is our God like what is the true God like because it is God's character that actually confronts the idols of unbelief and the idols of unbelief will be that which revealed the epicenter as it were of the human heart's affections and the heart the heart is what is being laid open through the revelation of God's character. You understand that. When God shows you who he is, he's exposing where your heart is. Now, but God thankfully may not constantly inflict rapid fire judgments in our world like we see in Egypt. Aren't you grateful for that? As a pastor that uh, taught me many years ago, he said God doesn't always use his machine gun on flies. But we do see that when there is chaos, when there are temporal judgments in our world, however they might come, God is trying to teach us something about himself that we need to turn to him and learn. So what is it about God that these judgments are revealing? Well, we saw a few of them last week in chapter 7. We learned that God is sovereign as God predicted the precise activities and responses to those activities that would come. He rules over everything, he's sovereign. He's supreme and we saw that through Aaron's rod becoming a massive cobra, challenging the supremacy of Pharaoh who wore that striking cobra on his own crown and Aaron's rod then devoured the cobra-like rods of Pharaoh's magicians. We also learn that God is the source of life The Nile was worshipped as a God from which all life sprang and when God turned the Nile into life-destroying blood, he reminded Pharaoh in Egypt and he also reminded all of the onlooking Israelites, only Yahweh can be the true source of life. Now Exodus 8 has three plagues in it. And these three plagues will highlight for us one primary characteristic about God. And that primary characteristic about God that we'll see here is that God is the creator of all life. You say, well, why does he need to show them that he's the creator? Because if God is the creator of everything that lives, he is the one alone who is to be obeyed. What was Pharaoh's question? Who is the Lord that I should obey him so the right out of the the gate he's shown him he's sovereign he's supreme he's the source but he is the only creator of all things that live therefore he should be obeyed and we're going to see that through these three judgments they reveal three arenas of life through which god is the creator They might seem a little odd to you at first as we go through them. You might be bewildered of why does he need to show it in this kind of explicit detail, but if you'll hold on and, and think through it carefully, you're going to see it. It should come together in the end that God is the creator of all of life. There's nothing that exists that he did not make and over which he then does not rule and have authority. So the first judgment and the first arena of life. What does it tell us? God is the creator of what? He's the creator of water life. Water life. You see, that's, that's bizarre. Why does that matter? But I want, you, I want to unpack this with you. And I want you to see explicitly what God is doing in these verses. Verses 1 to 15. God is the creator of all the life that comes from lives in the water. You can see the emphasis on water in these verses. Verse 3 will mention the Nile. Verse 5 is the call for Aaron to stretch out his staff over, do you see how explicit it is? The rivers, over the streams, over the pools, and make frogs that live in the water come up on the land. And so verse 6, Aaron stretched out his hand over water all of those waters as if he's just moving his hand and his staff across all the waters of Egypt. And then verses 9 and 11 go back and refer to the Nile again, the Nile that river that they believed was the source of all life. So this is an emphasis on the water. But there's another emphasis here that I wonder if you heard and you thought about as you heard it read. Look at verse 3 just for a moment. Notice the opening phrase there. The Nile will, what's the word? Swarm. Where have you heard that word before in the Bible? You heard that word before in Genesis chapter 1, did you not? When God was creating in Genesis 1, when he was creating living beings, he began with all of the animals that swarm where first in the water in the water Genesis 1:20 God said let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind This is explicit language by Moses God, the creator of the swarming living creatures is now going to cause the swarming water creatures to swarm so much that they will spill out of the water and swarm through the entirety of the land of Egypt. Water, the creator, but you have to ask, God, why frogs? Could you not have picked something else? Bass? Catfish? Why frogs? Well, these are creatures that are adept at living on both the land and the water. They would obviously come from the Nile, from which the Egyptians believed was the source of everything that lives. And so they believed the Nile was to be a blessing to people. Now it's going to become another curse to them. But also, as one commentator said, the Egyptians had a particular goddess, the goddess Heket who was always pictured with the head, and often the head and the body of a frog. And since Heket was embodied in the frog, the frog was sacred in Egypt. Can you imagine? Sacred frogs. I hope nobody has a frog around their neck this morning. Perhaps there is, and I should be careful with this. The frog was sacred in Egypt. It could not be killed, and consequently there was nothing in nothing the Egyptians could do about this horrible and ironic proliferation of the goddess in the egyptian pantheon the frog goddess heket was the spouse of the creator god kunum and the egyptians believed that kunum fashioned human bodies on his potter's wheel and then heket breathed into them the breath of life she was the agent of life-giving power and the symbol of fertility God is going to mock Haket, and he's going to mock Haket and the Egyptians for worshiping a frog of fertility, and make these frogs so numerous they loathe this God they would not touch, springing from the Nile that they thought would give life and blessing, the creator of everything that swarms in the waters. Causes swarming creatures to invade everything. Creatures that people look to as a gift will now be a curse. And you see the extent of the frogs. It's very explicit. Look at verse 3 again. The Nile will swarm with frogs which will come up and go into, watch this, and, and underline the word your because he's speaking to whom here? Pharaoh. Pharaoh. They will come up and go into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and on your people and into your ovens and into your kneading bowls so the frogs will come up on you and your people and all your servants. Who's he going after? It's very clear. He's going after Pharaoh. Pharaoh, last time when he saw the first plague, he just turned around and walked into his house and and said, I don't care about this. You go find water for yourself. I'm not bothered by this. Not this time. Not this time. This plague is going to impact Pharaoh himself. Every place he goes, everything he eats, everything that belongs to him, every person who serves him, every." around him will be impacted by these frogs his bedchamber was his most private quarters that no one else would invade and yet God would show himself cursing Pharaoh even there another commentator notes about these frogs what was actually threatened was the ugliness of having slimy unsanitary, unpleasant to the touch amphibians everywhere and the constant annoyance of having to listen to them croak and peep throughout all the parts of people's houses implied is the disgust that would occur when people stepped on the frogs as far as we know Egyptians did not wear shoes indoors and when they rolled over on them in bed again people slept on mats on the floor not in elevated beds as westerners think of beds And when they were surprised by them in various places, thought otherwise to be clean like feeding troughs and ovens. They're everywhere. And you'll notice that when Aaron lifts up his hand, he doesn't strike the waters like he did with the Nile. He just lifts it as if he has authority over it. And it will be God himself who then strikes the Egyptians. But even more... Isn't it interesting how God mocks the magicians? He mocks the magicians. You say, well, how does he do that? Because they do the same thing. It says, verse 7, the magicians did the same thing with their secret arts, making frogs come up on the land of Egypt. And you say, how's that God mocking? Who wants more frogs? I mean, all they did was complicate the issue, right? I mean, what what really would have shown power in Egypt is if they could have done away with the frogs. But all that God would allow these magicians to do is create more of the plague. That's God mocking the magicians. Which brings Pharaoh to his first plea. Look at verse 8. Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat, That's a very strong word. It doesn't mean, could you say a couple of prayers for me? This is beg God. Beg God, entreat the Lord. Entreat Yahweh. He he mentions his specific personal name. Entreat Yahweh that he remove the frogs from me and from my people. And I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to Yahweh. Well, this is what Moses wanted. Now he's going to relent, now he's going to submit, now he's he's given up. And Moses' response is so gracious. It's so gracious, look at verse nine. Moses said to Pharaoh, the honor is yours to tell me. In the Hebrew, this is an interesting phrase. He basically says glorify yourself over me. Glorify yourself over me, why? Why would he let Pharaoh do this? Moses at this point is not wanting to rub Pharaoh's nose in humiliation. This is an honor shame culture. He's allowing Pharaoh to save face in front of all of the Egyptians and still be believed as if he were some kind of divine being. So just entreat for me. And Moses says, I'll let you save face here. You tell me when. You tell me when. And that's exactly when they'll go away. Now, by doing that, Pharaoh knows Pharaoh knows this is God, not himself. But as far as everyone else will know, Pharaoh cut a deal, and he bargained. And Moses and the people and the frogs believe. This allows him to save face. It's very gracious of Moses. But it does remind Pharaoh, you don't have power to create equilibrium, God does. Now, how do you govern a world full of frogs? How would that even be possible? How do you reason with frogs to stop coming out of the Nile? You don't, so order, equilibrium comes immediately from the hand of God. You see verse 10, Pharaoh says, tomorrow. You say, why would he give him 24 hours? Well, he doesn't really mean that. The the phrase is just on the next day. He's basically saying as soon as possible. And he's asking Moses to pray and pray and pray. Beseech God, entreat God, beg on my behalf as long as it takes. Whatever ritual you have to perform, do it. Just make it happen at the soonest possible time. By, By the morning, the next day. And verse 12, then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried to the Lord concerning the frogs which he had inflicted upon Pharaoh and the Lord did according to the word of Moses and the frogs died out of the houses and the courts and the fields. So Moses prayed, he prayed intensely according to the Hebrew text, he was very intense, he's crying out perhaps even audibly though not in Pharaoh's presence, he's crying out audibly to God. And Yahweh does exactly what Moses asks. This actually elevates Moses above Pharaoh. He's the intermediary now. God is certainly elevated above Pharaoh, but now even Moses is elevated above Pharaoh because he now is the one who can make appeal to Yahweh and Yahweh listens to him. And it all happened. Now what would have been Pharaoh's Desire, my guess, would be as though all the frogs would hop back into the Nile. But this plague is going to linger a bit, isn't it? So they don't all go back into the Nile. They die everywhere. Everywhere. They die and the Egyptians are trying to put them in piles and the whole land it says, the land became foul. It's as if the ground itself is a stench. Dead frogs in your bed, in your oven. I mean, come on. Your oven in your flour, your houses in the royal courts, fields full of crops and livestock. Everywhere you went, you walked through piles of rotting frogs how about haket this goddess is defunct but look at verse 15 but when pharaoh saw there was what relief <sighs> no more frogs they might smell but they're they're gone when he saw there was relief he hardened his heart and he did not listen to them as the lord had said That's the fickleness of the human heart. When we get what we want, we just go back to our old idolatries, don't we? Pharaoh, you notice here, he hardened his own heart. Now previously, up to this point, we've been told God will harden Pharaoh's heart or Pharaoh's heart would be hardened by something outside of himself, namely God. But here it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Does that mean God was absent? No, God was not absent. Why did Pharaoh harden his own heart? Because God was at work in him to harden his heart. How do we know that? Because Moses is explicit to say he hardened his heart as the Lord said he would. And what had the Lord said previously? I will harden Pharaoh's heart. There is no distinction between Pharaoh hardening his own heart, which he does of his own will, And God at work in all of his circumstances and surroundings and even in his inner conscience so that he willingly hardens himself against Yahweh. Those things work in connection with one another. It's not God just staying outside and saying let's see what happens. God never stays outside of anything to just see what happens. God's involved even here. It happened just the way God said it was going to happen. And it was supernatural. Don't Don't think that this is some kind of natural thing that happened of all these frogs coming out everywhere. No, that's not the case. You say, well, the Egyptians would never kill the frogs. How did they control the population? Well, they they had alligators, crocodiles that would consume many of the frogs but there were so many here that even that population couldn't control it this is something supernatural this is beyond the norm always reminds us too as we're going to see over and over if you're looking to cut a deal with God if you're you're the kind of person that puts out fleeces God if you'll do this then I'll do that that's not a heart of true sensitive dependence on God now you know maybe one of these years we'll get to judges and see why Gideon put a fleece out but when you read the book of judges and people are doing things they shouldn't that's not a sign that you should pick it up it's God being gracious despite their stupidity don't put out fleeces Don't make deals with God. That just shows where your heart is. It's not truly dependent on the Lord and submissive to God. And you see it in Pharaoh here. Miracles didn't change him, miracles did not change his heart. They just solidified where his heart was. But what is God doing here? You worship the Nile. You worship the creatures that come from the water. I'm the one that creates those things. I can create them in such abundance that you'll even loathe them so that you will know that I am the one who controls everything. I am the creator of everything that comes out of the water. Now there's a second arena of life that emphasizes God is the creator of life and it comes in the second judgment that we find in chapter 8. God is the creator of land life. We saw water life. Now we see land life. Verses 16 through 19. Just a short section here. The land life. Where the previous plague was connected to the water, this is obviously connected to the land. The land is the emphasis. Aaron will be called to strike what? The dust of the earth, verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth that it may become gnats throughout all the land of Egypt. And so Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth and there were gnats on man and beast and all the dust of the earth became gnats through all the land of Egypt. So where there was an emphasis on water in the previous plague, there's an obvious emphasis on land in this one, isn't there? And just as we saw in the plague of the frogs, that it had an explicit connection to the book of Genesis and God as creator. So does this one. When you hear the phrase, the dust of the earth, what comes to your mind in the book of Genesis? Hopefully it's something like Genesis 2-7. Then the Lord God formed man of what? The dust of the ground the dust of the earth, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. In Genesis 3.19, there's another reference to man's creation from and return to the dust of the earth. Genesis 3.19, by the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Even the Apostle Paul refers to that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 47. The first man is from the earth. He is earthy. Furthermore, do you remember how the land animals were formed in Genesis 1? Genesis 1, 24, then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. The reference here is to God as the creator and God is the creator of all the animals that live on the land. So when the gnats come they come from the dust. And notice verse 17, who did the gnats attack? They come and they were on man and beast, the two lives that were created on the land. So the emphasis couldn't be more clear. But, why gnats? Why gnats? The frogs, that's terrible, but gnats are are a nuisance. Just a nuisance. Well likely, these are not referring to the gnats that just kind of swirl around your head when you're hot. This is likely a reference to mosquitoes because mosquitoes are, believe it or not, from the gnat family. There's only two uses of this word gnat in the Bible, here and one in the book of Isaiah, that just refers to people dying like gnats. So it doesn't really explain exactly what it was, but one commentator notes in the ancient world, the worst kind of gnat was the mosquito. They were the most hated, troublesome branch of all the gnat family. And these insects could be deadly, especially in this region, carrying disease, infecting the bloodstreams of both people and land animals. Now it's difficult to know if there's just one particular Egyptian god that's being singled out here, or if it's just Pharaoh again, or all of the people of Egypt under which Pharaoh would rule, this is just an attack on Pharaoh. Because this plague is absolutely pervasive. There's no person untouched, no land creature that's unaffected by these mosquitoes, biting them everywhere. In fact, Aaron, Aaron stretches his hand out and causes dust to become these mosquitoes. So anywhere there was dust, there were mosquitoes. Think about Egypt, friends. There's dust everywhere everywhere this is not like the summer months and your centronella candles are out on your porch while you're trying to have a nice dinner no they're literally everywhere you you don't have enough candles there's no way to get rid of these things and they're coming and they're stinging and they're biting and you know how irritating one mosquito bite is could you imagine having hundreds on your body No, this this is not just an annoyance. This is a plague. And it's not a natural phenomenon. This isn't just the formation of mosquitoes because of the previously blood-soaked Nile and the putrefaction from the frogs. Some commentators have suggested that. No, these, these gnats did not come. These mosquitoes didn't come from the Nile. They came from the dust. The dust, not the water, The dirt, it's supernatural. And you can notice the difference between this plague and the previous two in verse 18. The magicians tried with their secret arts to bring forth gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. There it says it again, just so you know, this is all about the the people, the animals that dwell on the land. They couldn't do it. What does that mean? Well, I think the the previous acts of the magicians were supernatural acts. They were using some kind of supernatural ability from the hand of Satan to create these things and now they have no supernatural ability which convinces them God has stopped them which is exactly what they say in verse 19. The magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. And by the way, The finger of God, not the hand of God. The hand of God is often used to talk about the judgment of God. The finger of God in other places in the Bible oftentimes refers to the creative ability of God. This is the finger of God creating this. As if to say again, this is God who is the creator. This is the finger of God. We can't do this. We we can't create this. There's no supernatural power. Some other supernatural force has stopped us from doing this. But notice verse 19 also. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And he did not listen to them as, as the Lord had said. It was hardened. Another reminder. He's being impacted by God. His heart was caused to be hardened. God as Romans 1 would say, had given him over to his own heart. Just like he said was going to happen. God is the creator of everything in the water. God is the creator of everything in the land. One more. The third arena of life that highlights God as the sole creator of all that lives. Third, God is the creator of angelic life. Angelic life. Right, that's verses 20 through 32. You said, well, I thought this was about flies, not not demons. Oh, there is a connection. Where would I get this idea from this final plague? Well, look at verse 20 for a moment. The Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water. Now, that sounds a lot like the first plague when he was going to plague the Nile, doesn't it? And you remember what we learned, why did Pharaoh go out to the water? This was likely some ritual bathing process. There's something religious connected to this. He's going in the early morning to acknowledge the rising of the sun God over the Nile God and he believes he's a God and he's gonna bathe in this and connect himself to all of this. It's some ritual connection and religious. So rise early in the morning, present yourself before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. As you're trying to show yourself godlike, listen to what Yahweh says to you. Obey him. Now interestingly, verse 21 again connects this plague to Genesis chapter one, highlighting God as the creator. Look at verse 21. For if you do not let my people go, Behold, I will send what? Swarms. Oh, no. More swarming creatures? Yes, swarms of flies on you and on your servants and on your people into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians will be full of swarms. There it's said again. Swarms of flies and also the ground on which they dwell. Everything is going to be covered with flies. People and land all impacted why flies well there's been a lot of commentators trying to connect flies to like the scarabs of Egypt the beetles but these aren't beetles these are just flies normal flies again Phil Reichen in his commentary reminds us there is a great possibility that the plague of flies was directed against Beelzebub. Did you know Beelzebub existed then? And what is, who is Beelzebub? He is the lord of the flies. Some Egyptians worshipped Beelzebub as their protector and guardian. And since his role was to protect their land from swarms of flies and other natural disasters, he functioned as a sort of insurance policy. The flies are connected to the world of the demonic. You remember the comment in Luke eleven fifteen 15, when some were accusing Jesus, says he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. The Lord of the flies is the Lord of the demons. Notice again the specific phrases in verse 21 that connects everything to Pharaoh. On you, on your servants, on your people, and your houses, and the houses of the Egyptians. He's going after Pharaoh again. I mean, what good is Pharaoh? If he, if he is to bring ma'at, control, order, he can't do it over the creatures that live in the water. He can't do it over the creatures that live on the land. He can't even control the spiritual world. What kind of God is that? pharaoh i mean that was one of his chief jobs protect the people from even the spiritual world that comes to impact others and to make this plague even more emphatic these demon representing flies would have no impact on god's people did you notice this look at verse 22 but on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people are living. Remember, they they were keepers of cattle and that's where the the, the shepherds and the cattlemen lived was down in Goshen and the Egyptians didn't want anything to do with shepherding. They didn't want anything to do. They viewed that as dirty. That was beneath them. That's for the unclean people. So that's where Israel lived was in the land of Goshen and that's where God says, where my people. Remember, the flies will come on your people pharaoh but on my people they'll have no impact so that no swarms of flies will be there in order that you may know that i yahweh am in the midst of the land and i will put a division between my people and your people tomorrow this sign will occur it's almost like he gave him a moment to repent you get till the morning tomorrow you got some time but a division. Now, have you ever tried to keep a fly in the same room? You can't do it. They'll crawl under the the space in the door. How do you stop tens of millions of flies at the border of a land with no walls and no doors? Again, this is supernatural, isn't it? This is God at work. I mean, I I can't keep one fly. I got this gun at Christmas that shoots salt out. Have you seen that thing? I've been using it. It is awesome. It just (laughs) obliterates that fly. But there's not enough salt in the world to kill all these these kinds of flies here. God's not going to allow even one fly to land in Goshen. That is phenomenal. Not one Israelite will have a fly problem their summer months were glorious out on the on the porch barbecue while the egyptians are just covered with them and so verse 24 the lord did so and there came great swarms of flies into the house of pharaoh and the houses of his servants and the land was laid waste because of the swarms of flies the land was laid waste how many flies does it take to absolutely spoil the land it's incredible no demonic impact on the Israelites. My people have no demonic influence while your people are dominated by it. Reminiscent of even what the Apostle Paul would say in Ephesians chapter two. That those who are dead in their trespasses and sins are under the sway of the prince of the power of the air that works in the sons of disobedience. But Colossians 1 reminds us that when you're in Christ, you're delivered from the domain of darkness into the realm, the kingdom of God's beloved son. There's no demonic influence on the believer. God's making that distinction here. That completely undid Pharaoh. Verse 25, Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, go, sacrifice to your God. But he puts borders on it within the land, within the land. And, And Moses would not buy into this. No, that isn't what God asks us to do. We're not cutting deals with God again. I just want to remind you, don't try to cut deals with God. Who do you think you are? You don't bargain with God. All right, God, if you do this, I'll do this. You don't make deals with the Creator, You're a creature. Moses says, no, it's not right to do that. Verse 26, we will sacrifice to the Lord our God. If we do that, it is an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice what is an abomination to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go a three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he commands us. We have to obey him. We're not doing it within your demonic controlled land and remember the egyptians viewed the israelites as people who were unclean this would be if the egypt if the israelites were to worship and offer sacrifices to yahweh inside of egypt it would be like christians walking into a mosque and worshiping the true god in there the muslims would view it as defiled they get a little angry over that kind of thing have you seen the western wall and the temple mount in israel but this plague was so bad that Pharaoh was even willing to let Israel go worship outside of Egypt. All right, just, just take it outside the land. Just go far enough that he could maybe keep tabs on them. Verse 28, I'll let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you shall not go very far away. Make supplication for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I'm going out from you, and I shall make supplication to the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh and from his servants and from his people tomorrow. Only do not let Pharaoh deal deceitfully again. Called him on his lie, didn't he? In in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses intercedes, and God immediately answers it. Verse 30, Moses went out from Pharaoh, made supplication to the Lord. The Lord did as Moses asked, again, exalting Moses over Pharaoh and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh. They just go. They just leave. Not one remained. That's, that's impossible. That's imp- you can't do that with flies. You can't reason with a fly unless you're the creator, right? Just left. Just left. And yet again, verse 32, Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and he did not let the people go. Miracles don't transform hearts. Do you see what God is doing in these three plagues? Why, why does God in these plagues highlight his creative power? He emphasizes himself as creator, connects himself back to Genesis, does it over. The creatures in the water, the creatures on the land, and even over the spiritual world. Why does he do that? Well, what's left? What's left? Even if you go back to Genesis 1, you say, well, there's the birds of the air. But where do the birds of the air make their nests? Birds don't live in the air. They live on the land. So where else? When you go back to Genesis 1, you'll see it. The birds were created on the day that the swarming creatures were created. God is over everything. There's not another place in the created universe that God is not over because he is the creator of it. Now remember, Pharaoh asked the question, who is Yahweh? What's the answer? He's the creator of everything that lives. But remember the other part of Pharaoh's question, that I should obey him. He's the creator. That's why you obey him. Do you see this emphasis? This is the chief attack. Not just in the modern world, it's been the chief attack throughout human history. If you can deny the creator, you don't have to obey, right? To deny a creator has ethical implications, doesn't it? It has obedience implications. If there's not a creator, or if I think I am the chief of the creation, and I create then I determine for myself right and wrong and obedience or not. And God is eliminating this from the vocabulary of the Egyptians. There is one creator who made absolutely everything. And if God is the creator, you obey him. If God is the creator, you serve him. If God is the creator, you have to appeal to him. If God's the creator, you worship him. So why is it that we believe as Christians that we should accept designations of male and female exactly as God has said in the Bible. Why do we do that? Because God is the creator. And why should we define marriage the way God defines marriage in the book of Genesis? God is the creator. Why do we think of? that the animal world is actually distinct and different from humans because God said in Genesis as the creator they're created according to their kind I create man according to my image I'm the creator why should we consider the guidelines of scripture for parenting can't you just kind of do what worked for you and and your family, and what you think might work in whatever, Why, why do you have to actually obey the Bible in that? Because who is the creator? When chaos erupts in our world and disasters strike, whether from the sea or on the land, in the sky, even in the supernatural world of the angels that we can't even see, what are we to do? We're to humble ourselves before the one creator of all of it. he's the creator he's to be obeyed inherent in creation is wisdom the creator knows how he put it together why he made it as he did and therefore his word is not restriction his word is true life and liberty because he's the creator of everything everywhere Why does John's gospel begin by telling us that the word was not only with God, but the word was God, and then goes into it and says, and everything that was made was made by the word. Why does he do that? Why does Jesus, when he heals, and he shows authority over physical disability, he casts out demons, and he even overcomes the land and the sea. Why does he do that? The same reason God is doing this here. Who is Jesus? He is God. And everything he did showed his divinity. Why do we say that Jesus alone is who you must come to and obey and trust in? Not, not some other religion, not some other God, not, you can't mix the two together. Why is it Christ alone? He alone is God. He's the creator. And we come face to face. We know who he is. Now, will we obey him? He's the creator of all of life. That has a question in mind for you too, doesn't it? Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would open our hearts, open our hearts to see the reality of how you as the creator impacts everything around us. And that your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the image of God, the perfect display of all divinity. There's not anything that exists that wasn't made by our Lord And so we come to this place to obey, confront our hearts where that's necessary. Perhaps there are hearts here that need to be encouraged with the reality that the creator is on their side. And despite the challenges, when we have the one who has made all things who is for us, then truly nothing can really be against us. When you've given us all things, you can fulfill that promise because you're the one who made it all. You know how it's to work. If we're out of line and not governing our lives according to what you've revealed in the word, then remind us we're not ultimate, not above the one who made us and breathed us into existence. And as we think in this moment of how the word who became flesh not only displayed divine power, but also divine compassion in completely living according to the law in perfection, and then willingly giving up his life as a sacrifice in our place so that we could know you, be forgiven of our rebellion against the Creator. Our God, as we take of the Lord's table and we remind ourselves who your people are. We've come apart from the world. We take these elements that are a sign of our distinction. We belong to you. You've set us free from the domain of the demons. You've brought us into the kingdom of your son. We're connected to him. Remind us of the treasure of that truth as we declare openly who your people are we thank you for this time to meditate in the word and now to celebrate who we are in Christ through the Lord's table we pray in Jesus name amen